Well, we've been, we've, we're in a sermon series out of the book of James, the general epistle of James. So if you want to turn to the epistle of James, we're still in chapter 1, and our series is entitled Real Faith. Now, I know a lot of people throughout the years have struggled with, the, with the, the epistle of James, and one of them being Martin Luther, but having said that, there is so much in this book. It's such a beautiful book because it really lays out for us what real faith looks like. And so today, we're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we're going to be looking at a godly perspective. With that in mind, if you've got your Bibles open, let me just begin with this. A man was stranded on a desert island and spent weeks looking out at the ocean, hoping to see a boat so that he could be rescued. And one day he jumped for joy because looking out, he saw a boat coming towards him with a man in it. And so he was excited because now he could get back out to sea and make his way home. The man on the boat had been adrift for a week and seeing the island, he too erupted with excitement because now he could finally get back to land and have food and live. It's a different perspective. Two people desiring something very good and necessary, but their perspectives are completely different. You see, Perspective matters. And I'm not going to pretend or to argue which one of these had the better perspective. I'll let you try to determine that on your own. But we all have a perspective. We have perspective about everything. And perspective is important because it determines how we respond. Now, James, in this epistle, is writing to the Jewish believers who've been scattered because of persecution, because of their faith in Jesus, and also because of the great famine that had struck the region of Jerusalem. And many of these Christians had lost their businesses, they'd lost their jobs, they'd lost their homes, they'd lost their friends, and some had even lost their families because of faith in Jesus. And James instructs them to consider their trials with an attitude of joy because God uses trials in the lives of his children to produce a spiritual maturity, producing a faith that's mature and complete, lacking nothing. But for this to be effective, you need to have the proper perspective. You need to have a heavenly or a godly perspective, not an earthly one. A perspective with an eye on eternity, with God and his purposes, and not on the fleeting afflictions of this world. James understood that trials vary in size and intensity and impact people differently. But in order to know how to respond, he instructs them to ask God for wisdom. Because when you ask God for wisdom, you'll get a heavenly or a godly perspective. And the people of God 
need wisdom from God and that godly perspective so that they can know how to respond in trials in a world that they don't even belong to. And so now in James chapter 1 verses 9 through 11, he becomes practical. He's going to show them how real faith through godly wisdom is lived out in terms of your economic and financial status. So we read in James 1, 9 through 11, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's a short passage of scripture, but there are three perspectives that I want to draw out of this passage. The godly perspective within poverty, the godly perspective within affluence or when you have great abundance, and thirdly, the godly perspective regarding the pursuit of riches. So let's look at the first point that I want to show you in verse 9, the godly perspective within poverty. James writes, he says, now let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. When James speaks of the lowly brother here, he's speaking of those in a position where they don't have much. And they're simply trying to make their ends meet on a day-to-day basis. He's talking about people that are living in poverty. And James understands being in a needy state like that can be incredibly discouraging. And so James commands those who find themselves in this position of poverty to boast in their exaltation. But what exactly is it that he's referring to when he talks about this? You see, in the culture of those days, to be low on the social scale or to be in poverty was seen as a shameful thing. And so, within the context that we've been looking at, what Christians were experiencing, it was common for Christians who found themselves in poverty because of their faith in Jesus, to be humiliated by society, to feel marginalized, to be embarrassed, and then, of course, to feel great discouragement. But James commands them to make much of their exaltation. In other words, what he's getting at here is that they, as those who've been joined to Jesus Christ, should make much of their identity in Jesus Christ. He's telling them, look, when you've got nothing and society looks down on you and marginalizes you because of your situation, don't be discouraged. Don't embrace the world's perspective of where you find yourself. Grab on to God's perspective and make much of your identity in Christ. Yes, it's true, you may not have much. And in the world's perspective, you may not be much. But your reality in Christ is much different. 
You are a genuine and true child of the one true God. You are perfectly loved. You are fully accepted. God does not look down on you. God does not ridicule you. God does not insult you. He does not think less of you. He is your father. And nothing can separate you from his love. You are a brother or a sister to the king of kings, Jesus Christ, who created all things and gave himself for you. The king of kings gave himself for you, laid down his life for you, and now you are joined together with him for all eternity. And what's more, we read in the scriptures that you are now a joint heir together with Christ. What's he mean when he says that you are a joint heir together with Christ? You know what it means? It means that anything that Jesus Christ has been given or will be given by God the Father will be given to you. Because this is the will of God. Because you've been joined with him and joined to him. Anything Christ receives, you're going to receive. Anything that, that you do not receive, Christ is not going to receive. Because you are a joint heir together with Christ. You stand in that regard on the same level as Christ when it comes to inheritance. All your riches. Even though in this lifetime, you may not have much or be much. But all your riches are kept for you in heaven where Christ is. And even though in this life, these eternal or heavenly realities may not be apparent, your hardships in this life are momentary. And the day is coming for the majority of people who are gonna hear this sermon today the day is coming in less than a hundred years, which is such a very short time where this reality of the truths of everything that you have in Christ will become actuality. It's nearer than what we feel or think. So don't get lost or hung up in the world's perspective of not having much or not being a somebody. Don't get hung up on the fact that you may be a nobody because you are known and loved by the one who is eternal and who is perfect in all his ways and he's accepted you fully and loves you perfectly and has given you everything you need for life and godliness in this life and has great rewards and riches waiting for you in heaven. So embrace God's perspective you are a child of God. You're a fellow heir or a joint heir together with Jesus Christ. But you know the thing that sets Christianity apart as well? Christianity is the great equalizer. It lifts up the downtrodden and it brings down the high and the lofty. So I want to show you the second point out of this passage the godly perspective within affluence. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now watch this. And the rich 
in his humiliation. Now, James is speaking to those who are rich. He's speaking to those who are able to indulge and enjoy and a lot of those things that the poor can't because of their wealth. And it may have even afforded them a degree of liberty and freedoms that the others didn't have. Now, whereas the poor person is to boast in their exaltation, having been raised up because of their union with Christ, been exalted, so the rich person is not to boast in his riches or his earthly wealth or his status, but rather he's to boast in his humiliation. Now, what's Paul, excuse me, what's James mean by that? You see, often the world's perspective of the poor or those who are in poverty is that they're a failure because they've failed to make something of themselves, at least in North America. Whereas the rich are often seen as those who did the right thing and having made something of themselves. Their lives and homes are often featured in magazines and often wealthy people are given better treatment than the poor. They're given greater respect within society. Their ideas are sought after more. Their opinions seem to carry more weight. They're often honored for their achievements and their status in life. And people want to be associated with them. But James says to the rich person not to boast in their status or their wealth and their affluence and their abundance but they're to boast in their humiliation. As I already stated, the gospel is the great equalizer. It exalts the lowly and it humbles the exalted. You see, the rich Christian is not to boast in their status or their wealth. They're actually to boast in the fact that their wealth means very little. It doesn't mean much because apart from Christ, they're actually spiritually bankrupt. But that's not the only thing that James is alluding to here when he says they're to exult in their humiliation. See, in James' day, for the rich Christian to boast in his humiliation didn't simply mean to act sheepish or coy about their status or their wealth. It meant to embrace and to boast about their association with Jesus Christ, which in their society was humiliating. It was a shameful thing to be associated with Jesus. Christians were considered the scum of society because of that, they were mocked and they were jeered and mistreated and persecuted. And in fact, to be associated with Christianity was such a shame that husbands would often divorce their own wives if they declared faith and love for Jesus Christ. 
Children would be disowned by their own parents if they professed faith in Jesus. To be associated with the name of Jesus was to bring shame and dishonor upon your family. And so for the rich person to openly declare faith in Jesus and to live for the cause of Christ carried with it the very real possibility of being ostracized and shunned by society. But that, that shouldn't keep them from boasting about Jesus. It shouldn't stop them from boasting in their humiliation. You see, in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Now, we could spend time this morning discussing how, in, in the last many years, how this verse has been interpreted and used in our culture and our society. But it'd be a waste of time. Here's what we need to understand about this verse and what Jesus was getting at. What he's saying is this, to follow Jesus means that you must be willing to embrace all the humiliation, all the rejection, and all the suffering that comes with being associated with him. And let's be honest. Even in our day, when we've had it so good, when the majority of us have lived such comfortable lifestyles, we've had nothing to fear concerning our faith in Jesus Christ, Christ no repercussions from the, from the country we live in. Even in our day, how many times have we failed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ or to share our association with Jesus Christ because we're embarrassed and we're afraid of what they're going to think of us after this. But it's not just simply that. It's not just, not just the fact that sometimes we hold back and don't want to confess or admit that I'm a Christian and I'm associated with Christ. I actually want to press on this a little more. See, that's just kind of surface stuff right there. How often do we declare our love for Jesus? Not just confess, yes, I'm a Christian. But how often when we have that opportunity to share the gospel or someone says, what, you're a Christian? Do we actually say, yes, I am, and unashamedly so, and what's more, I love him. And how many times do we share with people that our lives are completely dedicated to the glory and the cause of Jesus Christ? So it's not just simply stating that, yes, I'm a Christian, but actually knowing and sharing and declaring that I love him. And my whole reason for existing and everything I do in this life is to make much of him. I failed in that so often. And I would dare to say that you have as well. 
And this is the filler, fuller picture story of what James is getting at here. Don't boast in your wealth. Don't boast in what you have. Don't boast in your status. Embrace in that which brings humiliation. Boast in your weakness. Declare that apart from Jesus Christ, you are nothing and spiritually bankrupt. Boast in the glory of Christ. Boast in the worth of Christ. Not in your wealth or status. That's what it is to make much, to boast in your humiliation. <laughs> I'm nothing. But I'm known by Jesus and I'm loved by Jesus and I know him and I love him and my cause and purpose is for his exaltation. Boast in that. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says this, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Listen, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, God. Let that be your boast. He goes on, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. How many times do we want to be known for something else when this is what we should glory in? This is what we should boast about right here. And this begs a very real question for us, doesn't it? Even for me. When people think of me, do they think of someone who's enamored with Jesus Christ? Or do they think of someone and his standing in life, his status and his wealth? What are we known for in this life? May we be found to boast in our humiliation, to make much of Jesus and to recognize that without Christ, we're nothing. We're spiritually bankrupt. And we need Jesus. Some people will make the argument, oh, well, Christianity is just a crutch. Yes, it is. And so much more. So much more. I not only need Jesus to be my crutch, I need him to carry me through life. I need him to be my very life because apart from him, I am dead in trespasses and sins. So let us boast in our humiliation. And so believers who live with an affluence or an affluent society and have much themselves must be careful to boast in their humiliation. That's the godly perspective, to boast in our association with Jesus. That's what we must do. And then thirdly, there's another perspective here that this passage gives, another godly perspective when it comes to the pursuit of riches. So the godly perspective regarding the pursuit of riches. You see, when the ultimate pursuit, 
when the ultimate goal of this life is wealth and ease and comfort and prestige that this world provides, it's a fool's errand. It is a wasted life. Because we read here in verses 10 and 11, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Presently, we're in our spring season. And wouldn't you agree, it's so life-giving to see things growing, colors abounding, and flowers blooming. But if you live in Canada... We know that within our environment, we understand that all of these things are very short-lived. In fact, some of our flowers are gone within weeks. And that's the same end result of a life spent pursuing the wealth and prestige of this world. It's fleeting and it's passing. And as a flower wilts under the hot, scorching sun and disappears, so the rich man will fade away while he's in pursuit of his wealth. Not only is his wealth here today and gone tomorrow, but he himself is as well. And so it really is a fool's errand to make that your chief aim in life. James actually says in chapter 4, 14, that our lives are but a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. During the different seasons of the year, you can get up in the morning, spring, the summertime, and and there's, uh, I love it. It, it, there's something unique about it. You get up in the morning and there's just this slight mist, not, not even a fog, just this mist that just kind of hangs in the air. But it's gone. It can disappear within minutes. And it's gone. And that's what it's like when wealth and riches is the pursuit of your life. Not only will the wealth be gone, but you will disappear in your pursuit of it. Jesus actually shared a parable of a, of a man whose only pursuit was the abundance and ease that wealth can bring. When we read in Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, Jesus was telling to the, the, the group of people around him, and he said to them, take care, listen to this, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, ah, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample good laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, people hear this, this parable, and some of the first things that come to their mind is, is this. Is it wrong to retire? Does God not want me to retire? The answer is, it depends. The point was, this rich man in this parable was all about himself. Everything he had, he kept for himself. He was living for himself. He had no concern for God. He had no concern for the will of God. He had no concern for the glory of God. And Jesus clarifies this in verse 21 of that parable. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, listen, and is not rich towards God. No, wealth is not wrong. Retirement is not wrong, but it's the heart behind it and what the heart is set on, maybe more specifically on who the heart is set on. Are you building wealth so that you can live the high life for yourself or are you making, living, or are you living to make much of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, when we simply pursue wealth so that we can enjoy it here and now and live the high and good life as understood from the perspective of this world, it's a fool's errand. But when we recognize Wealth is fleeting. It's not what makes me. It's not who I am. It'll be here and it'll be gone. And apart from Jesus Christ, I am spiritually bankrupt, so I'm living my life for the cause and the glory of God with all the abundance he's given me. There's a different mindset. There's a different perspective, a godly perspective, because it's not about me. It's about God. And it keeps the rich person from wrongfully putting their trust in themselves and in their wealth. So when we wrap these verses up, you know what it actually boils down to? Whether rich or poor, our boast should be in nothing but Jesus Christ alone. That's what this is all about. Christians who find themselves in poverty need to focus on and make much of their identity in Christ, recognizing that all their wealth is in him. The rich 
who may not experience trials in the same way need to make much of their need for Christ regardless of the impact it may have on their wealth or their status because earthly wealth and prestige is fleeting anyway and it can't save you. I pray that we may be found living our lives from a godly perspective in whatever condition we find ourselves in. Because you see, it is God alone. This is the perspective we need to have in this life regardless where we find ourselves. It is God alone who brings light out of darkness. It's God alone who brings strength out of weakness. It's God alone who brings steadfastness out of suffering. And it's God alone who saves bringing life out of death through Jesus Christ who is our life. So may all our boast be in Jesus Christ and him alone. Are you trusting in him today? Are you living for the will and the glory of God? My prayer would be that it would be. Would you pray with me? Father, as we looked into your word, I pray, Lord, that we would have a heavenly perspective, Lord. Lord, the world has a perspective. But Lord, I pray it would not be the perspective that the people of God have embraced. I pray that it would not be the perspective that we here at RBC St. Thomas have embraced. Lord, I pray that our heart's prayer would be like that of the writer of Proverbs. When he said two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be dull and deny you and say, who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. But even in these things, Lord, if we find ourselves poor in that season, may we find Christ to be sufficient. Would we have that heavenly perspective, the perspective of God, that all our riches are in Christ and that we've been fully accepted and loved by you as children of God and we are joint heirs together with Christ and that which we have received by faith for the majority of us, as I said earlier, in less than 100 years will find this to become actuality. Lord, and for so many of us who live in such Affluence, such abundance, who have experienced the lives of great wealth and ease. I pray, Lord, we would not put our comfort in that. I pray, Lord, we would recognize how fleeting and passing it really is, how quickly it disappears. I pray, Lord, that 
we would not fall prey to the trap that we're safe because we have much. I pray, Lord, that we would turn to Christ and we would see that he is what we need because apart from him, we are spiritually bankrupt. We've got nothing. We're actually dead in trespasses and sins. And I pray, Lord, I pray for us this morning. I pray for everyone, Lord, that may hear this sermon, Father, in one way or another, that they would find their sufficiency in Christ and they would find all their wealth and their riches in Jesus Christ and without shame declare our need of him and for him in all things. So Lord, lift up the lowly and humble the wealthy, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray with thanksgiving, amen.